The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Nick Tate. He is the deputy health editor at Newsmax Media. He's also the author of a book called Obamacare Survivor Guide, and the book we'll be talking about a lot today, which is Da Vinci's Baby Boomer Survivor Guide. Welcome to the show, Nick. Great to be with you, Jordan. Thanks for having me. So let's just start with your background a little bit. You've kind of done a lot in the healthcare area, but this book is a broader kind of personal finance book for baby boomers. Give us a little bit of your background leading into this book. Well, I'm a 30-year career journalist. I've been covering uh, health and healthcare for uh, about three decades, and increasingly the focus of my attention has turned to that kind of uh, nexus of finances and health care in terms of driving better health in this country. And, of course, with the advent of, of Obamacare five years ago, the rules and the, and the game has changed. So what we've tried to do with this latest book is combine both uh, financial advice for retirement planning uh, as well as some good advice on he- choosing a health care plan, what's coming in the way of health care reform and Medicare, and uh, also how to live a healthier life. So I'd like to think that uh, the advice and the recommendations that are backed by solid reporting that went into this book are a little bit of a culmination of what I've been doing for many, many years. And our hope is really to provide a consumer's guide that helps people navigate the somewhat difficult waters that will lead to retirement for tens of millions of baby boomers over the next 15 years. So let's kind of take a broad view of the situation baby boomers are in. Something like 10,000 a day are uh, retiring and hurting, turning 65 and qualifying for Medicare. Um, are most of them in pretty good shape and ready for retirement, or most of them not in good shape? Kind of give me the bird's eye view of uh, the, the situation as baby boomers are, are now hitting the retirement years. Well, there's good news and bad news here. The good news is that boomers are going to be living longer than any generation in history. Life expectancy has now grown into the high 70s, early 80s for most Americans, which is about twice what it was just a century ago. The bad news is millions are really not prepared financially or in other ways for retirement. Let me, let me throw a couple numbers at you. Only about one in four boomers have really saved enough to retire and be comfortable in retirement. One in four seniors on Medicare will go through all of their assets and savings and out-of-pocket health care costs in just the final years of life, which essentially means that the cost of dying in this country vastly exceeds a lifetime of savings for a significant minority for millions of Americans. And about three-quarters of Americans will require some form of long-term care, assisted living, a nursing home, home health care, yet only one in 12 Americans actually have insurance or a plan, a plan to pay for it. And with, as we say, with 10,000 Americans turning 65 every day, and that's a trend that will continue over the next 15 years, these are problems that are only going to grow. So I fear that, in fact, um, the boomers have been a little bit of an optimistic generation that has embraced the now, 
and hasn't wanted to really take, a, I'm overgeneralizing, but many boomers really haven't looked too far into the future, and I fear that for millions that will mean that those golden years, those retirement years, will lose a bit of their luster. So the future is arriving now, is basically what you're saying. It's not the future anymore. We're, we're seeing it today. Exactly so how, right. How are th uh, both politically and economically we're going to deal with the situation you have all these people, as you say, who don't have close to enough savings, these enormous health care costs, particularly at the end of life. Are people just going to die sooner? Is this going to bankrupt the nation? Kind of what's the overall way that we're going to cope with what you've just described? Well, I think sadly what it's going to mean is that for many boomers, there is going to be a kind of rude awakening if they don't take steps now. Social Security certainly will be there for Americans for the foreseeable future, but it's not likely to be enough money that will allow people to live. I think we need to start thinking about Social Security as supplemental income, not primary income. Obamacare is making huge changes to the health care system, which is already driving up the cost for most Americans who either buy their insurance or get it through Medicaid, Medicare, or through their employer. There are about $716 billion in cuts to Medicare that Obamacare will also implement over the next 8 to 10 years or so. So the, the problem is that I think a lot of folks have kind of expected that the, the reward for a life well lived, uh, building a career, building a family, giving back to the community, paying taxes their whole life, the reward will be that the government will take care of you through Social Security and Medicare, and it ain't necessarily so. I think that we really, need, we really will be looking at cases, again, of people going bankrupt because of medical bills they can't afford to, expend, uh, uh, to pay, which we have seen in the past. I think we're going to be looking at a lot, a lot more money that's going to be discussed in terms of putting back into the healthcare system, back into social programs, and we just, at this point, with the nation running a, what is it, an $18 trillion deficit, I worry that that's going to lead to a kind of train wreck in terms of what people in this country are going to need and what the federal government and the state governments are going to be able to provide. So I do think those retirement years are going to be very lean for many people who do not take the steps now to make a plan. Well, politically, at least the Republicans say that the, we have to balance the budget over 10 years. And where is that money going to come from? Entitlements. That's the only big thing in the federal budget that would make any significant impact. The rest of the after defense, paying interest on national debt and entitlements, the rest of it's almost a rounding error when you get down to it. You're so what kind, right. of, what kind of legitimate entitlement cuts uh, in the situation you've just talked about with all these people retiring, not having saved enough, having the medical needs, what kind of legitimate entitlement cuts do you think are possible in this situa situation? Legitimate's a, a difficult word to deal with here. I mean, le le I would say from a financial standpoint, there's no question that programs like Medicaid, which is the health care program for the poor, and incidentally funds basically 80% or more of uh, nursing home care in this country, though that program is going to have to get a hard look in terms of cuts. So some of those benefits are likely to be cut moving forward. I do think the day will come, and it's already starting to happen, where there will be means testing for Medicare as well. So if you're a senior of means, you may not get that great benefit that Medicare recipients have received for 50 years. Um, 50 million plus Americans are now on Medicare, and already we're starting to see some of those changes. There are also uh, aspects of Obamacare that allow the government to make financial cuts to Medicare moving forward if we need to balance the budget, which we will need to do. So in terms of what are legitimate cuts, I think there needs to be a, a harder debate on how we make those cuts and drive down health care costs, and there are ways the federal government can do that, while at the same time not leaving people with 
cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and other conditions, Alzheimer's that are clearly associated with age. We cannot leave folks in danger. But balancing those two needs, balancing the books and making sure people are covered, I think is that's an issue we have not really grappled with. The truth is, politically, nobody wants to talk about cuts to Medicare because seniors are obviously a huge voting block. Reliably, they turn out to the polls. And so anyone who stands up and says, well, we need to cut Medicare because we need to balance the budget, that's a person who's going to have some political liabilities. And unfortunately, I think that that's meant that the, the harder discussions that we have to have about how to balance the budget, and that means cutting entitlement programs, it necessarily will mean we haven't had yet. But I do believe that that's coming. I think during the last election, the AARP said, don't even think about cutting Medicare and Medicaid. Completely off the table, basically, that's is what they said. That's right. right. And you may remember, I mean, in 2012, the last presidential election, Medicare, Medicare became a huge political football with the Democrats accusing the Republicans of trying to privatize it and go to a voucher system, you, you may call the debates. Mm -hmm. yep. and, Rom and Romney and the Republicans on the other side saying, well, the, the, the Democrats are proposing to cut Medicare by $716 billion through Obamacare. So they are going to take your benefits away from you. The truth is that they, both of those sides, had a, there was a legitimacy and a kernel of truth in both of the arguments, but the bottom line for me and from a consumer standpoint is that seniors are going to need to be smarter about how they spend their money. They are going to be absorbing uh, more costs for health care and health insurance, almost regardless of what happens in terms of the larger political debate. I do think that Medicare and health care reform are going to be big issues again heading into the 2016 election for president in the White House, particularly in light of what the Supreme Court may be doing on Obamacare, which will obviously have a ripple, ripple effect on not only health care, but Medicare as well. All right, well. Let's make you the czar here. You're a president with total powers over the Congress to do whatever you want. What would you recommend, what would you implement as a way to keep Medicare and Medicaid uh, f fiscally solvent uh, going forward, knowing the situation as well as you do? Well, Medicaid, let's take them one at a time. Medicaid, mm -hmm. in my opinion, is a program that states need to have a greater hand in deciding. In fact, the, under Obamacare, the, the federal requirement is that states essentially raise the eligibility guidelines so that people are earning up to, I think it's 133% of the poverty, poverty line will qualify for essentially free health care. Well, that's going to raise the number of people on Medicare in this country, Medicaid in this country by about 15 million but there isn't much discussion of where that money comes from and how those increased federal uh, dollars are going to be uh, raised. That's I huge. That's billions of dollars you're talking it's, about, right? It's, in, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. It's enormous. <laughs> I, do, I think the smarter thing would be to, for the federal government to say, as they have done in a couple states, Arkansas is one of them, where the state legislature and the governor has said, listen, HHS, we have a better idea. We want to privatize Medicaid. We want to create Medicaid HMOs. We want to require poor folks who do, do need health care under Medicaid to pay a small fee, uh, a nominal fee that is not going to bankrupt them into the health care system to keep it solvent. We want them to be employed so they're earning income and eventually will get off of Medicaid. These are the kinds of th experiments that states are doing, and up to this point, the federal government has been reluctant to give the states the power to make those changes. But in states like Florida, where there's a movement toward Medicaid HMOs, in Arkansas, where they're privatizing Medicaid, and there are other programs in other states that uh, have been pr uh, proposed, I think that in the new debate over health care, 
That needs to take place. That needs to be. Uh, but you're considered. saying right now the states do not have the power. They can propose these things, but they can't implement them until there's some kind of legislation at the federal level. That's exactly right. The feds need to approve them, and, they've, and the feds have been reluctant because, for all the reasons that you have suggested, that politically the Democrats and those on the, on the left side of the aisle have suggested, well, this is going to hurt people. But there hasn't been much discussion of, okay, well, how do we make sure we don't hurt people but still have the money to pay for them? So Medicaid, I think, is one of those issues that needs to go back to the state. Medicare, I do think there's a responsibility to provide for the health care of seniors. People over the age of 65 earn, uh, uh, use about twice as much health care services as people under the age of 65. I think, is, I think it is an, uh, what? It's a, there's a moral responsibility here. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing the things that we can to drive down the costs of health care for people who are 65 and older or people with chronic health conditions. One thing we could do more aggressively is really push prevention. So if you're in your 40s and your 50s, Insurance programs can be changed that would give you, and tax programs could be changed, that would give you a financial incentive to join a health club, join a diet plan like Weight Watchers, quit smoking. There are provisions in the federal law that allow for insurance companies and larger employers to do this, but they haven't really rolled out to Medicare in a way that, that would be useful. There is, I will point out, a pilot program through the Affordable Care Act under Medicare to create what are called accountable care organizations. These are, these are essentially programs that provide a, a team of health care specialists that deliver care to an individual patient. So you have a primary care uh, a doctor, you have maybe a specialist if the person has diabetes or cancer or heart disease, you have a cardiologist or an endocrinologist on the team. You often have somebody who is either a fitness specialist, a personal trainer, or a nutrition and the, the model there for that care is all of these individuals work together. They treat the patient like a team with the primary care position, physician being uh, kind of quarterback. And the, the key here is that under Medicare, the federal government gives a bonus, a financial bonus, to those teams that deliver quality care per patients that are below a certain threshold. And some pilot tests of these programs have actually found that not only do the seniors on these programs like them because they feel like they're getting a lot of attention from the doctors and the specialists who can really boost the quality of their health, but the, the team players in these experimental programs have also gotten a financial bonus. So it really it's a win-win all the way around. It's yeah. a win-win. And what it really does is it, what you're trying to do is you're trying to drive down the use of healthcare services through prevention, through diet, through fitness, through quitting smoking, through lifestyle changes, those things we can control. Unfortunately, it's kind of like a little side tiny piece that is very, very little money is going into this program through the Affordable Care Act. That's the kind of program that I think could result in, in a real hold down in cost. The other part that I'll mention is a wider use of a hospice benefit that is available through, through uh, Medicare but is not widely used. Hospice can be a very humane end-of-life uh, uh, option that many seniors can choose to be in their own homes and not exhaust their life savings, as I just discussed, in a hospital with uh, you know, life-saving procedures, heroic efforts that just cost a lot of money and really do not extend your life. So those would be two that are that are, are, they are available, they can be used, and they're just not getting a lot of attention because they're difficult to topics to talk about, and everyone likes to talk about the bigger picture as opposed to the practical where the rubber hits the road. But I think those debates are coming. I hope those debates are coming. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Nick Tate. 
He's the deputy health editor at Newsmax Media. He did a prior book called Obamacare Survival Guide, and his latest book is called Da Vinci's Baby Boomer Survival Guide. There is a website related to the book, which is babyboomers711.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Nick Tate. He's the deputy health editor at Newsmax Media. He's done a book, Obamacare Survival Guide, and his latest book is called Baby Boomer Survival Guide. Uh, there is a website related to the book, which is babyboomers711.com. Welcome back to the show, Nick. Good to be here, Jordan. Thank you. So, so we have a potential blockbuster Supreme Court decision coming up uh, quite soon. Uh, so tell me what could happen either way. S- say uh, if they vote against it and basically say the, the states cannot offer these subsidies, uh, kind of break up Obamacare, what would happen to the healthcare system at that point? What's plan B? Well, we're told that the White House and uh, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, don't have a plan B, but I don't think that's true. I I actually think the likelihood, if the Supreme Court strikes down these subsidies, about six and a half million Americans will lose these financial credits that they're getting that amount to hundreds or sometimes thousands of dollars to buy their health insurance on their own. So obviously for those individuals, unless a solution is crafted by Congress and approved by the White House, they will lose. My expectation is that, in fact, 
a decision that if the court decides to strike these subsidies down, it really cuts the legs out from under the individual mandate of Obamacare requiring everyone to have insurance or pay a fine. And it also is the triggering mechanism for the employer mandate that requires all employers who have 50 or more employees to provide health insurance or pay a penalty. That's, that's how, how it's triggered, is these subsidies. So I think that what it will do is it will, it will drive Congress to come back and talk about health care and health care reform. What I hope can happen is that both sides will be able to say, look, we've had five years of this experiment, the Obamacare experiment. There are things that people like. There are things that polls show people would like to keep. And there are things that people don't like the poll show. So I'd like to see at least a discussion and hearings in the Senate and the House on whether or not a reform can take place that would allow for keeping those things that people like, allowing for, for instance, for folks who have pre-existing conditions to get insurance, which couldn't happen before. In many cases, those folks couldn't get insurance. Now they can. How can you preserve that and perhaps fund it in a different way that makes it less costly? But what would actually happen? Okay, so let's say the Supreme Court yep. does strike this down. That means these subsidies are not legal. Are they stopped right away? I mean, it's now considered illegal. And, and I mean, you could have discussions. We're just about to enter the presidential election cycle here. Nothing's going to get done this time. So what, what actually happens if that uh, Supreme Court decision goes that direction? Some of that will depend on how the court rules and what the writing of the rule means. The, the history tells us that the court will allow for a grace period that may be a year that will allow right. for Congress and the White House to come up with an alternative solution, which could be as simple as changing the language of the law that forbids states that don't have their own health insurance marketplace. That's for something a Republican Congress, which has tried to uh, repeal Obamacare 50 times, is probably not going to agree to, right? Unless they see it as leverage that will allow them to, to, to implement some of the other changes in Obamacare that people have been talking about, like the, getting rid of the medical device manufacturer's tax, like mm -hmm. eliminating the employer mandate, like modifying or eliminating the individual mandate, if the Republicans can say in one voice, look, we'll change the law so that these subsidies can continue to flow to these states, but we expect the White House will approve a, le a legislation that will take away these things that polls show people don't like, and even some Democrats say these are not working on the behalf of, of consumers and they're increasing health care costs. So it's possible that we could see it, but I think the practical reality is that the Supreme Court, if they strike down the subsidies, will, in fact, give a grace period to Congress to come up but with a solution. If, if the grace period, say it's a year, and mm -hmm. it runs out, then these 6.5 million people lose their subsidies, and they're basically going to be uninsured. Is that right? I mean, if, assuming Congress does not pass some kind of legislation in, right in the middle of the political campaign. Well, there are two things to consider. First of all, a, a, some estimates show that as many as 80% of the individuals who bought insurance through these exchanges actually had it before Obamacare and before they got the subsidies. So it's not a definite that all these folks will drop their insurance going forward. However, there are certainly a significant percentage that will, even if it's a minority, that will drop the insurance and they will just take the, uh, the, the penalty and pay the penalty going forward. That could happen. It wouldn't happen immediately. In all likelihood, the Supreme Court would allow for uh, a grace period. But eventually, if in fact they strike it down and there is no compromise meet, uh, reached, then those folks would lose those benefits. Interestingly, many of them are in red states. Um, 26 of the 34 states that would lose these subsidies are run by Republican governors and have uh, dominant uh, GOP 
legislature. So there is going to be, you know, some pressure on Republicans to step up and not simply vote to uh, to eliminate the law entirely. I think there's a chance that even in states like Kentucky, we'll see uh, uh, members of Congress who are up for election. I think there are 22 or 24 seats in the Senate that are up next year in those red states. They're going to have to come up with some political stance on how to keep those benefits for those folks in their states while at the same time saying they want to undo or, or reform or amend Obamacare. It's going to be interesting. I think that I think health care will again be a front and center issue for the pre during the presidential election through next so, year. So do you think, not on the legal technicalities, but do you think this would be a good idea if in fact the Supreme Court voted against the subsidies, said it was not legal, and all of what you just talked about happened, do you think that's a, that would be a positive thing in the long run? I think it would, and let me tell you why. I think, I think there are other ways to fund these kinds of subsidies for people who need them. And in fact, there are Republican alternatives to Obamacare that do preserve at least some of the subsidies. Uh, they fund them differently, and they fund them in a way that won't bankrupt the countries. But the, the larger issue is I think it will, if, they, if the Supreme Court does do this, it will force lawmakers at the federal level, level and in D.C. to say, look, we have to fix some of the aspects of this program that are not working and that are costing too much and driving up health care costs and health insurance costs. And I, I'm hoping that a ruling in, in that direction, a ruling to strike down the subsidies, would force both Republicans and Democrats to say, look, we've got to come up with a better plan than what we've had for the last five years. And it gives Republicans leverage to it do does. something, which right now they don't have it. There's no, no incentive whatsoever for Obama to want to change anything. He's happy Absol just the way it is. Absolutely. You know, this, this president has said that, that Obamacare is the signature achievement of his administration. So he might be open <laughs> to compromise in a way that he hasn't before. But, you know, that remains to be seen. It certainly does give the Repu would give the Republicans the upper hand. There are some dangers there for them politically for Republicans. But I think it would give them the upper hand in negotiating uh, some changes. And that's why we're already seeing Senate hearings being planned on these subsidies and on other aspects of Obamacare. Hmm. Uh, let's talk about Social Security, which is another big one that people aren't talking about. <laughs> it was another huge issue. Uh, I mean, officially, uh, the system goes into uh, negative balance, more going out than coming in. I think it's, what, 2030 or something like that? That's right. Um, mm -hmm. So do you think the same kind of thing what you talked about in Medicare might happen Social Security. We get means tested where upper income people either get little or no Social Security or at least less than they're getting now. I think it'll have to happen unless we come up with another alternative. I mean, the other alternatives include things like pushing back the eligibility date. Right now, you can start taking Social Security as young as age 62. I think Jeb Bush has talked about pushing that date back in the past. That, uh, that birthday back in, uh, in some of his previous conversations. So that, that's one option. Um, I, I do also do think that we're going to have to be talking about modifying some of those benefits, either making them means-tested or in other ways lowering them, or everybody's going to be hurt. The, the truth, though, is that all, all that would really need to happen, and this is not a great scenario either, is that you just would raise the amount that's paid into Social Security <laughs> by those people who are still working. So, you know, it could be yet another sort of hidden tax. You raise that, the cap from 118000 now, whatever it is, to uh, exactly. unlimited? It would be the same as Medicare? It could be potentially unlimited? It could be. It could be. So that's, that's another option that people are, well, are not talking about really very, very publicly. Um, but I, I, you know, depending on your perspective, a lot of folks don't really think that Social Security is in danger because the federal government does have means available to make sure that it always exists in some form. 
But the question is, how high will those benefits be? When will you get them? And will it be more than just a kind of drop in the bucket in your retirement? So what are the demographics? I mean, I see a lot of different numbers. Uh, as we get, I said, what, 76 baby boomers uh, at the peak, once they're all on Social Security, the uh, generation behind them is not close to big enough to support them at the current level of, of benefits. What, what, what does the math look like? I mean, you can see what's going to happen as these gener the, the so-called pig and the python. What, what does the future look like here? There will still be more people working, even at the height of uh, boomers except taking uh, Social Security benefits. There will still be more people working, paying into the system, than there will be drawing benefits out. But I think the numbers have gone from about, it's five to one people working versus people receiving Social Security benefits. It will drop down to three to one over the next 10 to 15 years. I don't have the, the numbers right in front of me, but it will drop, but it won't entirely be overwhelmed by the number of people who are going to be accepting Social Security. Um, for you as an individual, though, when you take Social Security in light of the potential changes that are coming is a significant decision. And you, there are some choices you can make that, are, that kind of up your personal. For me, a lot of the debate really breaks down to, well, what does it mean for me? What does it mean to the individual? And, and in the book, what we're trying to do is say, for you as a consumer, these are big topics. These are 10,000-foot-up political debates. But for you as a consumer, these are the kinds of choices that you should be considering. And so a lot of, I think the last number I saw was something like 40% of the people eligible start taking it at age 62 the moment they can start, which is probably hurting them in the long, but they feel they have no other alternatives. Is it something you think should, people should wait till full retirement age of 66 or, or 70? I, what, what should most people do? I absolutely think that you should. Let me give you three numbers. At, at, at age 62, the average benefit is 1200 a month. At age 66, it's 1600 a month. If you can wait till age 70, the, the monthly payout is more than 2100 a month. So over time, it's nearly twice as much if you take it at age 70 than what you would get at age 62. And with people living ever longer, you really have to look beyond just what you're getting in your 60s. If you live into your 80s, if you live into your 90s, which many Americans are doing now, you think of the tens of thousands of dollars of income difference that you're looking at. So the longer you can work, the later you can delay taking Social Security, the better off you're going to be. Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Nick Tate. He's the deputy health editor at Newsmax Media. His new book is called Baby Boomer Survival Guide, Live, Prosper, and Thrive in Your Retirement. You can find out more about it at his website, babyboomers711.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Nick Tate. He's the deputy health editor at Newsmax Media. He's done a book called Da Vinci's Baby Boomer Survival Guide. And there's a website related to the book, which is babyboomers711.com. Welcome back to the show, Nick. Good to be here, Jordan. Thank so you. A big part of uh, retirement is housing, and you have a chapter called A Place to Call Home in Your Golden Years. What are some things people should be thinking about doing and not doing as far as housing as they enter retirement? Well, I think you know, housing, own, home, ownership, home ownership has really been the backbone of the economy and is the largest store of personal wealth since World War II. Um, so equity in the family home is really the largest personal asset that most American households have or can have. This is particularly true for, uh, for baby boomers. It represents about 50%, our research showed, of, of personal wealth, with the average wealth amounting to about $125,000. So owning your home in many, for many Americans is really the single smartest investment strategy you can make. Plus, of course, it gives you a place to live as you're, as you're uh, having some financial security. If, if, for instance, you decide uh, in retirement that you want to sell your house and move to smaller, cheaper quarters, that can give you a little bit of a nest egg right there. Um, even assisted living facilities for some Americans, it gives them a store of money that they can use if they sell their homes to help pay for assisted living, home health care, nursing home care. Uh, Do you think that's care. a good idea to sell? Because typically you have to buy into assisted living, basically use the proceeds from your home sale to buy into these places. Do you think that's a good deal for people? I think it really is. It depends on what your needs are. I think you know if you've lived it. If you if you're a senior, uh, maybe you're married. You've lived in a, a four or five bedroom house to raise a family for twenty five or thirty years. You are. Why do you need a home of that size, which requires that much maintenance, that much attention? Even if it's a two or three bedroom home, you can buy or rent a smaller place or a place that. You know, I, I live here in South Florida, which is the land of the retiree. There are many, many living arrangements that cater to individuals who might need a little bit of help. Somebody who can help with, you know, rides to a doctor or, or getting medicine or, or even food without completely compromising a person's independence. Those are the kinds of things that I think are going to become more common 
And for individuals who are living in neighborhoods, conventional neighborhoods, they may not be as attractive for seniors as living in a place where there's a little more community support. So depending on what your needs are, depending on what your financial picture is, that is a good option. But of course, it's not the only one. I mean, So do you like, like these continuing care communities where they, you start off healthy, they need a little bit of help in the nursing home? It's all part of the package over several years. Do you think that's a good idea? I think they make a great deal of sense. You know, as, as a, my father was in a nursing home in the last 18 months of his life, and I can tell you that it was, it, they provided great care. We were very happy with uh, the program there, but it really wasn't the kind of step-up care that would have allowed him to be more independent at the beginning and then escalate to, to uh, more attention as he, as he progressed. He had uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, mm -hmm. But, I, but I, I think they do make a lot of sense. I think as the graying of the boomers continues to happen, we're going to see more options like that. And, they, you know, to this point, I think one of the things about the boomers is that we are an enormously independent-minded group of people, and we don't like to think of these things. But I do think as we get older, um, I think that they will become, in fact, more common, and, and we're going to see them everywhere, and they're, they're a good option. They're not the only option, though, uh, if, you're, if you're a homeowner. Um, in fact, a reverse mortgage is a good option for folks. Um, so, so what are the pros and cons of reverse mortgages for people who have equity in their house? Pros and cons are that it gives you a steady source of income as long as you live in, and you continue to live in your home. The con is that you lose that property to whoever takes out that mortgage, the lender. You, doesn't, you, you don't, can't pass it on to your children when you die. You cannot pass it on to anyone else. So it's basically, those are the pros and the cons. But if you You're need using the, money, the equity you built up over many years, basically. Basically, you're putting it to use for yourself, right. Yeah. So, so the consideration there is... To what extent do you want your home to be part of your uh, inheritance for your children? But it's a good option for folks who want to stay in their homes. I also think that there's going to be, there, we're starting to see them now, and over the next 10 or 15 years, we'll see an escalation. The kinds of technologies that allow people to live at home through things like telemedicine, uh, a remote sensing that will allow doctors and loved ones who may live in other states to track everything from a person's uh, medication taking to their mobility around the house, whether they've fallen. I mean, everything from, you know, cameras and uh, uh, sensors that can be attached to pill bottles and doors to carpeting that can indicate when someone is having a hard time walking normally or may even have uh, a fall. So that'll so allow people to stay in their house longer is what you're saying. It, it will. And, you know, I think for most boomers, and I think I would say this for myself, the more independent I can be into older age, the happier I'm going to be. So, so that's, another, that's another option to consider. And, you know, the final thing, of course, with a home, there is a nice fallback safety net, and that is a, a home equity line of credit. Even if you never take it, knowing that you would have it available to you, would be something that would be useful. So, you know, I, I do think the whole debate over rent or own, I think in this market in particular, owning a home is a really smart thing to do for your future. Now, as I understand it, the reverse mortgage rules have changed recently. So there's now a credit application and you have to be in better financial shape than in the past because a lot of people were taking out reverses and weren't even able to pay their property taxes or insurance. Is that going to change the reverse mortgage uh, market and the advisability of doing so? Well, I actually think that the raising of the bar there is a smart thing um, because it will, it will pres uh, there were some downsides to some of those early deals that were, that were offered over the last 10 years. And reverse mortgages, I think people didn't read all the fine print and they didn't realize what some of the downsides were. 
Um, I'm not sure the degree to which it will change the, the uh, make it harder for people to get reverse mortgages, but it'll just make sure that you need to be uh, a qualified applicant. The advice that I would recommend here, I just have to tell you the truth from a financial standpoint, if you have a financial advisor, if there's a professional you can consult who's in either the real estate industry or working with finances, this would be one case where it'd be worth sitting down with somebody for whatever the hourly fee is and say, look, these are my options. What is my best strategy here in talking it over with a professional? You also have a chapter in your book. Again, your book is called The Baby Boomer Survival Guide about inheritance. Uh, now, the uh, state laws have changed where the uh, tax is up to five and a half million or thereabouts. Um, do a lot of people not have wills and not done proper estate planning? What are some things people should look for in, in passing on inheritance? Because the amount that the baby boomers are going to be amassing and passing on to their kids is huge, as is the amount that they're going to be receiving from their parents. Well, I think it's true. I mean, we do provide um, uh, lots of details on things that you need to do. The differences between an inheritance, wills, and trusts, they all have different options. But you really do need a plan for how you want your money and your property and your, your belongings to be handled um, after you die. You know, this is one of those issues that's worth discussing with either your parents, if you're a younger boomer, <laughs> or your children, if you're an older boomer. On, it's, a, it's a tough topic. It's a tough topic. I'm sorry. It's a tough topic and tough for me to say, too. But I think what we try to provide in the book, and I've actually used this with a couple uh, colleagues of mine, take the book bring it to your children and say, look, let's talk about these 16 questions that are here that we should discuss on how you want your situation um, handled. So essentially you want to have uh, something that does define what you want to happen with your stuff uh, and with your children too, uh, should you die before you actually uh, expect to. Um, essentially a will provides for that. A living trust allows you to kind of get a, a head start on distribution before you die. And an inheritance tax to be paid by your heirs is something to be considered. If you don't have a plan in place, depending on the state you live in, your, your, your kids could really be hit with uh, an enormous bill, an enormous tax bill. And there's questions about what could happen to your home, your money, your investments, and all the things that you've built up in your life. Are you expecting further changes? We had some changes recently in the whole inheritance tax will situation. Are you expecting any changes, major ones going forward? I can't say for sure, but you know, if history is any guide, it's fairly fluid, so probably you'll want to be paying close attention. You know, one thing that, it, that we recommend, this is one of those cases too, like with a living will uh, and advanced medical directors, which we can talk about too, which are part of this whole idea. These are things that are worth reviewing either with someone who specializes, an attorney who specializes in, a, in estate planning, to make sure that you're, what you're putting on paper is actually legitimate in a particular state that you're living in and will hold up. And you know, I check with mine periodically to see if the law has changed and if I need to update. It's, it's really, you don't, you, you, this is one of those things where you can't, you don't really want to go to the web and download the form and fill it out. You really want to consult with um, a professional, at least from the get-go, to make sure that all things are in order. And if you have a good relationship with somebody, a professional in the community there like that, an attorney, that person is likely to stay in touch with you if there are big changes that you need to know about. Do talk about advanced directives a little bit, and uh, this is like a do not resuscitate order or who has health care powers of attorney. A lot of people don't have that, and they're scrambling around at the last minute to get these things signed. Just tell briefly what people should do in that area. 
Well, I think the mistake that most people make is that they don't understand that a living will is not enough. A living will, in simple terms, basically is a written document that says, if you end up in what's called a persistent vegetative state from which there is no chance of recovery, it lays out what you want to be done in terms of resuscitation, in terms of breathing devices. Um, but what you really need to do is you need to establish what's called a healthcare proxy. This is somebody who you put in charge of making decisions for you at a hospital if you can't make those decisions for yourself. It includes what kind of treatments you want. Do you want mechanical ventilation? Do you want a, a do not a resuscitate order? Do you want a feeding tube or not? Do you want your organs donated? There are so many things that we cannot anticipate that putting someone in charge who knows your wishes, who knows what you would want and can make those decisions based on circumstances nobody can ever foresee is really the most important thing. A living will is important, but establishing those advanced medical directors and having a person in charge who can make sure that they're implemented is really the key. That's really important. So that's normally a, a child would be the one uh, to sign those and, and have the uh, medical power of attorney often, to make those decisions. Often, but not necessarily. It can be a sibling. It can, in fact, be a close friend. Sometimes children are, are so emotionally wrought with a decision like that, it's hard for them to make the right call. That's why you can go to others. I see. Very good. Okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest this hour is Nick Tate. Uh, he is the author of a book called The Baby Boomer Survival Guide. You can find out more about it at babyboomers711.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need, exactly when you need it, so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Nick Tate. He's the deputy health editor at Newsmax Media in Florida. His book is called The Baby Boomers Survival Guide. There's a website related to it, which is babyboomers711.com. Welcome back to the show, Nick. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So we've been talking about Medicare and Medicaid and uh, living longer with Social Security. Uh, Part of that is these baby boomers are going to live longer into their 80s and 90s, and you have a whole chapter in the book about quality of life. What are some things that people should be doing uh, as they get older to have a, a good quality of life that they may not be doing now? Well, you know, I, I, I reflect on uh, Pete Townsend's uh, you know, old saw about hope, hope I die before I get old. I think that uh, there are some things that can make that <laughs> statement kind of having a chi- have a chilling reality. The, the truth is that baby boomers have always embraced youth and youth culture, and I think there is the potential that as boomers get older, there's no reason to believe that we're not going to remain a very active, mentally and physically, group of people. Uh, we we think of ourselves as young people. You know, what's what's the phrase that 65 is really the new 50? I think that's going to continue to be the case. But the key is main, recognizing, first of all, that the growing wave in genetic medicine is going to change medicine. I think for the better. So understanding your own genetic history can help doctors help you live better and live longer. So take advantage, we advise, of some of the genetic tests that are out there to help you determine whether you're at risk for breast cancer or prostate right, so cancer. S- say you do a genetic test and you find out that. What can you do about it if you know you're at risk for some particular disease? Well, even if you're at risk, it doesn't. First of all, you need to know that ge- genes are not destiny. As they say, you know, genetics uh, loads the gun and lifestyle pulls the trigger. So if you're at risk for breast cancer or prostate cancer, you, we know that science shows that Maintaining an active lifestyle, exercising, eating a healthy diet can reduce the risk of developing, but there's also the chance that you should see a doctor more frequently for uh, breast cancer screening, for prostate cancer screening, so that if you are at risk, it can be caught early and treated. So that's really important. The second thing I would say is it's worth exploring some of the new medicine that is in the area of immunology, immunotherapy. This is boosting the body's immune system to fight disease. It's really the core strategy of of the anti-aging movement that's attempted to push vitamins and alternative medicine to kind of uh, increase wellness and produce the body's ability, uh, raise the body's ability to fight disease. Those are two things that are worth looking into. But we also lay out in the book the kinds of tests that you should have by age, beginning in your 40s, men and women, what kinds of cancer screenings, what kind of heart disease and diabetes tests you should take. These are the big killers in this country, and so knowing what your risks might be and what your treatment options are is a good thing. It also holds healthcare costs down because, of course, you know, the old cliche is true, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But I also think things, we prescribe things that Uh, that focus on exercise, that focus on diet, the kinds of things that you should be eating, the kinds of things that you should be doing to maintain physical health, but also some strategies for preventing Alzheimer's and reducing your risk of developing mental health conditions. Alzheimer's at this point is the rate of Alzheimer's disease, which now strikes about 5 million Americans, is expected to triple over the next 30 years unless there are major advances made in the treatment of Alzheimer's. But there are things you can do to prevent it. If you you think you might get it, there are things you can do while you still don't have it to prevent it. Absolutely. From engaging disciplines of the mind, reading, learning to play an instrument, learning to speak a new language, 
crossword puzzles, reading. These are things that science shows delay the progression of Alzheimer's if you're going to get it, and in some cases may even stave it off. There's a lot of science behind it. So what we try to do is we try to distill the science on heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and Alzheimer's and say these are the strategies that science shows us can work to reduce your risk, hold down your health care costs, and really boost the quality of your life. And as we get older, these are important things. You have a section called Lessons from Centenarians, people who've turned over 100. What are some of the lessons from people who've made it to 100? Well, the, the chief, the chief uh, lesson master here was uh, uh, Mandela, who suffered a, a lifetime of adversity but lived to be well into his 90s. And what his example shows us is that by remaining committed to people in the community, by remaining very socially active, and by engaging in things that boost your psychological well-being, you actually can en enhance your longevity. So, the, you know, the problem is I think a lot of seniors feel isolated. They don't get involved in either volunteer works or community or social world. They don't, they don't do work outside of family. So I think that the research shows that as a senior, if you're giving back to the community, it's not only good for the community, it's good for you as well. Engage your mind. Remain socially active. There's no reason to believe that, that uh, seniors of tomorrow, and indeed it's already happening now with the early uh, uh, wave of boomers, will remain as active as they've been all of their lives. And I think the big message here is that retirement is not likely to change the boomers. I think the boomers are going to change the nature of retirement, so much so that I would recommend that we come up with a new word for retirement for boomers that's more like reinvention you know, or reimagination. And, and for me, as somebody looking forward to one day retire, <laughs> I'm hoping that it is as exciting a chapter in my life as my life has been to this point. You have a chapter also on long-term care, what you call the long and winding road to long-term care. Mm -hmm. You said only one out of 12 people have long-term care insurance. Is that something you think most people should get, even though it's quite uh, expensive these days? And, and what's going to have to happen to people who don't have long-term care coverage? Well, I think insurance is one aspect, and what you need to do is you need to figure out how to plan for the possibility that you may, in fact, require assisted living, home health care, or, or nursing home care. Um, insurance is one way. Developing a savings strategy that would pay you an annuity would be another way. As we discussed, maintaining ownership of a home, which could, in fact, help, help you pay the costs of health care if you need it. You do need a strategy. There's a variety of options. There's a, a bunch of new plans that are being developed, too, by insurance companies. Life, many life insurance policies, for instance, will now carry a rider that allows you to use some of that money for long-term care should you need it. But if you don't need it, you can use it toward your life insurance policy. So this is one case where a little research really can go a long way. But don't wait until you're retired to figure out what you're going to need to do with long-term care. Insurance, life insurance, annuities, investments, other, other ways can give you the wherewithal should you need it, should you require assisted living, nursing home, or home health care aid. Because the premiums have gone up quite a bit on long-term care that make, make it unaffordable for some people, particularly they, as they, if they wait till too late. They can be prohibitive. If you're, if you're in your early 50s, you can get a policy that's reasonable, that's, that's comparable to other kinds of uh, insurance policies, life insurance policies. But like life insurance, the older you get, the more they tend to cost. No question. Is anything going to be done at the federal level? And there was a policy, I think, kind there of was. a group policy. Did that work or what, what happened with that? Well, it, the initial writing of the Affordable Care Act law contained uh, a plan for long-term health insurance, but the, the authors kind of soon realized that it would become 
on, there was no way they could fund it. There was no way that they could create a long-term care insurance component of Obamacare and not really have it bankrupt the nation. So what they did is they just killed it, and unfortunately, there's no alternative plan that I took see. its place. It so would have created another a huge entitlement, is basically what it, it would have. It would have, and I, and I think it was wise to take it off the plate of Obamacare. But what it did not do is it didn't. It, what it did is it left us with with really no solution. And you, as an individual consumer, again, you need to figure it out. But you know, the big message here is. You, you can't rely on the government, to, whether it's retirement finances, whether it's medical care, whether it's Medicare, whatever it is, Social Security, you really need to be a savvy consumer. Arm yourself with information. Your program is one of the ways people can do that. I like to think the book is another, but there's a variety of other sources out there. Just you have, to, you have to take matters into your own hands, and you can't wait for somebody to solve this problem and deal with what you need to deal with in your life as a retiree. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Nick Tate. Uh, he is the uh, uh, deputy health editor at Newsmax Media in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. His latest book is called Baby Boomer Survival Guide. You can find out more about it at his website, which is babyboomers711.com. It's been a very interesting discussion. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Nick. Thank you, Jordan. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.